Section 14 of the Science, History of the Universe, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This is a recording by Joanne Crosby. The Science, History of the Universe, Volume 4, edited by Francis Rolt Wheeler, Chemistry. Chapter 10, The Atomic Theory and the Work of Davy. A desire ingenite in the human mind to find an explanation of natural phenomena by the aid of speculations respecting the ultimate constituents of matter resulted in guesses and ideas concerning atoms in olden times without however the evolution of an exact chemical atomic theory with respect to the hypothesis of the ancient philosophers regarding the constitution of matter the following estimate by clifford will suffice in this connection Quote, from the earliest times that man began to form any coherent idea of the world at all they began to guess in some way or other how it was that it all began and how it was all going to end modern speculations are attempts to find out how things began and how they are to end by consideration of the way in which they are going on now a great number of people appear to have been led to the conclusion that the modern theory of the molecular constitution of matter is very similar to the guesses which we find in ancient writings democritus and lucretus it so happens that these ancient writers did hold a view of the constitution of things which in many striking respects agrees with the view which we hold in modern times the difference between the ancient and modern views is mainly this the atomic theory of democritus was a guess and no more than a guess everybody around him was guessing about the origin of things and they guessed in a great number of ways but he happened to make a guess which was more near the right thing than any of the others End quote. the conception of atoms had up to the close of the eighteenth century been almost entirely the property of the metaphysician and the mathematical physicist and had assisted in extending their sciences with the exception of cernate and boyle chemists had aided little in its formation and less in its establishment nor had they derived inspiration from it for the proper founding of their own science for more than a century they had been following the igneous fatuous of a false theory of combustion and a most elusive hypothetical phlogiston the close of the eighteenth century found them engaged in a bitter strife over these theories and too fully occupied to think of much else than the destruction of the old beliefs and the adaptation of the new the mastermind of lavoisier who had wrought this revolution was busied with the greater work of reconstruction and dealing a little with the hypothesis which could not be directly proved by experiments in his laboratory was laying broad and strong foundations of the new chemistry consequently the works of bergman scheele priestley black cavendish macker and others did not treat of atoms and their moving forces except in an occasional indefinite reference to some sort of particle yet the chemists were the very one required to undertake the scientific development of the atomic hypothesis and to establish it as a theory by discovering a series of facts which were connected together by it and found in it a simple explanation in seventeen eighty three the english chemist kerwain went so far as to refer to affinity as the force which holds atoms so intimately together that simple mechanical means are insufficient to separate them while his countryman higgins writing in 1790 on the composition of sulfurous and sulfuric acid, expresses the opinion that the atom of sulfur is combined with one atom of oxygen in the first, but with two atoms in the second. It is in the view of this statement, and others similar to it, that some have regarded Higgins as the real originator of the modern atomic doctrine. However, Higgins restricted his attention to a small number of compounds, his conceptions were not consistent with the fact he regarded those weights of elements which combine to form the simplest compounds as in general equal and he made no attempt to seek confirmation for any theory he had in the laboratory for long the common consent of the public opinion was given the undivided honor due to the discoverer of the great atomic generalization in its modern aspect to john dalton before the establishment of the chemical atomic theory could be brought to completion however it became necessary to fix the significance of the term chemical proportions according to which simple substances unite to form compound bodies 
and an important part of this question was solved by two chemists prior to Dalton, Richter and Proust. Jeremiah Benjamin Richter, 1762-1807, published in his De Yusu Matthiosin Shumia, 1789, and Uber die Neuren Gegenstande der Schumi, 1791-1802. The results of researches made mainly while employed as a works chemist in Berlin. The last two mentioned trustees contain the conclusion which he drew from his work upon the proportions by weight in various compounds. Richter looked upon chemistry as a branch of applied mathematics and exhibited all the distressing qualities of a person possessed by a fixed idea. He spent his life in seeking arithmetical regularities in the weights of acids and alkalis neutralizing each other, and in finding them in spite of their non-existence. Nevertheless, he managed to make discoveries of the highest importance. He not only noticed, but also correctly interpreted the fact that when two neutral salts decompose one another, the resulting salts are neutral. To quote his conclusions, concerning that very common experience that two neutral salts on decomposition again produce neutral compounds, I could draw no direct inference other than that fixed quantitative relations must exist between the constituents of the neutral salts. If a solution of two compounds is so constituted that neither of them, as long as it remains in the solution, exhibits the peculiar characteristics it had before solution, Example given, the reactions of an acid or of an alkali, then such a solution is called saturated or neutral, or also a neutral compound. When two neutral solutions are mixed and a decomposition ensues, the newly formed products are also, almost without exception, neutral. Hence it follows that if the combining ratios in the original compounds be known, those in the newly formed compounds are also known. End quote. C. F. Wenzel, 1740-1793, at an earlier date, 1777, had demonstrated that acids and bases combine in constant proportions, but had failed to note the persistency of the neutrality in the double decomposition of the neutral salts. Richter deduced from the maintenance of neutrality when one metal precipitates another from a neutral solution, a relation Bergman had observed, but which he interpreted in terms of another theory, that the quantities of two metals which dissolve in the same amount of acid also unite in their oxides with the same amount of oxygen. Therefore, he established that quantities of two substances which are equivalent in one reaction are also equivalent in the others. He was the originator of stoichiometry, or the art of chemical measurement which has to deal with the laws according to which substances unite to form chemical compounds. Notwithstanding the fact that Richter's trustees contained such important discoveries, these remained unrecognized until Fischer published a table of the relative affinities of bases and acids, founded on the values Richter had obtained in his translation of Berthollet's Recherche, made in 1802. Berthollet accepted the law of proportionality and gave an account of it in his Essai de Statique Chimique, in which he reprinted Fischer's note. Thus, Richter's work, which at the time of its publication had been almost completely ignored, became more widely known and appreciated. Louis-José Proust, 1755-1826, although a Frenchman by birth, conducted his most important researches in Madrid, where he settled after 1791. The work for which he is celebrated was the result of a series of questions which Berthollet had advanced. The two works of Berthollet on affinity, Recherche sur les lois de l'affinité and Essai dans statique chimique, were particularly directed against false views of affinity and the misuse of the so-called affinity tables of Geoffrey Bergman and others. He contended that affinity was by no means a simple force and easy to determine or measure but was influenced by temperature, physical state, cohesion, and especially by mass. The latter largely determined the course of chemical reactions. He went further, however, and from the correct premises of the influence of mass on the chemical effort produced, 
Berthelet drew the erroneous inference that mass had an influence not only on the amount of change, but also on the kind, producing a continuous variation in the ratio in which the constituents are united in a compound. He asserted the variability of the composition of chemical compounds, the possibility of combination between constituents and all sorts of continuously varying ratios. None of the other leading chemists of the day were able to concur with his views as to the lack of any fixity or constancy of proportion in chemical compounds. Yet they raised no objection, probably owing to Berthollet's reputation, and it remained for Proust to attack the theoretical conclusions of his eminent contemporary. Proust's numerous papers in his controversy with Berthollet appeared in the Journal de Physique between the years 1802 and 1808. The lucidity of the arguments employed, the variety of the experimental work described, and the freedom and keenness of the style rendered these papers, which deal exclusively with the distinctly dry subject of quantitative analysis, most interesting reading even now. Proust proves that substances formed under the most varied conditions have a fixed composition, and he shows that Berthollet's examples of variable composition were all cases of mixtures. This involves him in the necessity of discriminating between mixtures and compounds, an undertaking the difficulties of which he fully realized and with which he dealt in a manner very much like that still resorted to for the same purpose. Von Meyer. In 1799, Proust had proved the constant composition of native and artificial carbonate of copper and had enunciated the general principle of which this constituted an example. Of greater importance than these were observations he made upon the two compounds iron forms with sulfur and the two stages of oxidation shown by tin. He further investigated the compounds of antimony, cobalt, nickel, and copper, and throughout he found that vary the conditions and relative masses at pleasure, the oxides and sulfides produced always have a definite composition. To be sure, an element might combine with oxygen or sulfur in two proportions, but each has a compound of definite proportions. Proust showed the error which underlay the old method of determining the quantity of oxygen and oxides, of estimating the metal and calculating the oxygen by difference, proving that in many cases the bodies so examined were not oxides at all, but compounds containing hydrogen, hydrooxides we now call them. He moreover demonstrated that many of the bodies on the analysis of which Berthollet had based his generalizations were not simple at all, but mixtures of substances themselves of perfectly definite composition. So accurate were his analytical investigations and so logical his reasoning that Berthollet was overcome at every point. The law of definite chemical proportions as we now have it was the fruit of his preserving labors. This law is one of the fundamental principles of chemistry. It is expressed by the greatest teacher of chemistry as follows. Quote, if one substance is transformed into another, then the masses of these two substances always bear a fixed ratio to each other. If several substances react together, then their masses, as well as those of the new bodies formed, always bear fixed proportions to each other. End quote. Oswald, Outlines of General Chemistry. Undoubtedly, if Proust had calculated the results of experiments on the composition of binary compounds, sulfides, oxides, in another manner from what he did, he would have discovered the law of multiple proportions, but the propounding of this is due to Dalton. John Dalton, 1766-1844, was born at Eaglesfield in Cumberland, the son of a poor weaver. Endowed with natural aptitude and an indomitable will, he used all possible opportunities for the study of mathematics and natural philosophy. From 1781 to 1793, he taught school, instructed and lectured at Kendall, devoted all the time and energy he could spare to scientific investigations, chiefly meteorological. In 1793, he went to Manchester as tutor of mathematics and natural philosophy at a Presbyterian college. Though he resigned his post six years later, he remained in Manchester to the end of his life, earning his living as a private teacher and devoting himself uninterruptedly and earnestly to scientific research. The earliest researches of Dalton on the expansion of gases by heat and their absorption by liquids were of considerable influence on his later chemical work, as it was through them that he acquired the experimental skill which led to the discovery of the law of multiple proportions which, 
with the conception of the atomic theory which arose from it dates from 1802. On November 12, 1802, Dalton read a paper entitled An Experimental Inquiry into the Properties of the Several Gases or Elastic Fluids Constituting the Atmosphere, on which he found the first example of the law. In determining the amount of oxygen in the air, the following experiment was performed. Quote, if a hundred measures of common air be put to thirty-six of pure nitrous gas in a tube three-sixteenths of an inch wide and five inches long, after a few minutes the whole will be reduced to seventy-nine or eighty measures and exhibit no signs of either oxygenous or nitrous gas. If a hundred measures of common air be admitted to seventy-two of nitrous gas in a wide vessel over water, such as to form a thin stratum of air, and an intermediate momentary agitation be used, there will, as before, be found 79 or 80 measures of pure azeotic gas, nitrogen, for a residuum. If, in the last experiment, less than 72 measures of nitrous gas be used, there will be a residuum containing oxygenous gas, if more than some residuary nitrous gas will be found. These facts clearly point out the theory of the process. The elements of oxygen may combine with a certain portion of nitrous gas, or with twice that portion, but with no intermediate quantity. In the former case, nitric acid is the result. In the latter, nitrous acid. But as both these may be formed at the same time, one part of the oxygen going to one of the nitrous gas, and another to two, the quantity of nitrous gas absorbed should be variable, from 36 to 72% for common air, end quote. With regard to this experiment, Roscoe says, quote, in the memorable case in which Dalton announces the first instance of combination in multiple proportions, the whole conclusion is based upon an erroneous experimental basis. If we repeat the experiment as described by Dalton, we do not obtain the results he arrived at. We see that Dalton's conclusions were correct although in this case it appears to have been a mere chance that his experimental results rendered such a conclusion possible. End quote. The first of the observations of Dalton which furnished the experimental basis for the atomic theory consisted in the determination of the composition of two hydrides of carbon. Dalton writes, quote, It was in the summer of 1804 that I collected at various times and in various places the inflammable gas, marsh gas, obtained from ponds. End quote. He found that marsh gas, like olefiant gas, ethylene, contains nothing but carbon and hydrogen, and that these two substances, termed light and heavy carbureted hydrogen, respectively, showed a simple multiple ratio between the weights of the constituent elements, namely, in carbureted hydrogen from stagnant water, 4.3 of carbon were combined with two of hydrogen. In olefiant gas, 4.3 of carbon were combined with one of hydrogen. This regularity induced him to investigate other compounds in the same direction. Thus, in the case of carbonic oxide and carbonic acid, he found that, for the same amount of carbon, the ratios of oxygen present in these were again, respectively, as one to two. His convictions that there must be a law underlying these simple relations scarcely necessitated any further accretion after he had encountered similar simple numeric proportions and the results of his analysis of nitrous oxide, nitric oxide, nitrous acid, and nitric acid. In essence, the anhydrides of the last two and the oxygen compounds of sulfur. He had, therefore, demonstrated that when different quantities of one element combined chemically with one of the same quantity of another, these amounts stood in a simple relation to one another, a relation which could be expressed with whole numbers. The law of multiple proportions was thus discovered. It had indeed been deduced from experiments, which were of necessity not very exact, but this was to be expected from the condition of analytical chemistry at that time. Dalton next sought an explanation of the numerical relations he had discovered, and this was afforded him by the atomic hypothesis. For instance, he had but to assume that in carbon monoxide, one atom of carbon was combined with one of oxygen, 
and in carbonic acid one atom of carbon was united to two of oxygen upon this basis dalton erected his atomic theory which may be detailed from statements in his new system of chemical philosophy 1808-1810 as follows number one all bodies of sensible magnitude are constituted of a vast number of extremely small particles or atoms of matter bound together by a force of attraction which as it endeavors to prevent their separation is called attraction of cohesion but as it collects them from a dispersed state is called attraction of aggregation or more simply affinity number two the ultimate particles of all homogeneous bodies are perfectly alike in weight figure etc in other words every particle of water is like every other particle of water every particle of hydrogen is like every other particle of hydrogen etc number three no new creation or destruction of matter is within the reach of chemical agency all the elements we can produce consist in separating particles that are in a state of cohesion or combination and joining those that were previously at a distance number four the ultimate particles of all simple bodies are atoms incapable of further division these atoms at least viewed along with their atmospheres of heat are all spheres and are possessed of particular weights which may be denoted by numbers number five if there are two bodies which are disposed to combine then their combination takes place by atoms number six in an elastic gas each particle occupies the center of a comparatively large sphere and supports its dignity by keeping all the rest which by their gravity or otherwise are disposed to encroach upon it at a respectful distance the methods by which dalton determined the relative atomic weights from the proportions by weight in which the elements unite to form compounds falls next to be described to accomplish this the first thing necessary was to settle the number of atoms in a compound according to dalton this number is to be sought for in general in the simplest possible ratios in estimating it he started from the following principles number one when only one compound of two elements is known this is composed of an atom of the second order number two when two compounds are known the one consists of an atom of the second and the other of an atom of the third order number three when three compounds are known one atom of the second and two atoms of the third order must be assumed how did dalton now proceed to the determination of the atomic weights in essence the relative weights of the smallest particles in the first place it was necessary to choose a unit for comparison as unit he assumed hydrogen with the atomic weight equals one and he referred all the other atomic weights to this to fix the others he then applied his first principle at that time only one compound each of oxygen and of nitrogen with hydrogen was known namely water and ammonia respectively therefore the atomic weights of oxygen and nitrogen can be determined directly from the composition of these compounds in this way dalton found them to be seven and five respectively he checked the numbers so obtained by the proportions of the oxygen and nitrogen in the oxygen compounds of nitrogen he was acquainted with four of the latter in nitric oxide he found seven parts of oxygen for five of nitrogen its atom was therefore the atom of the second order derived from these elements in nitric acid according to his view there were fourteen parts of oxygen for five of nitrogen or two atoms of the former gas for one of the latter in nitrous oxide seven parts of oxygen were combined with ten parts of nitrogen and in this he therefore assumed two atoms of nitrogen and one of oxygen nitrous acid however is supposed to contain ten and a half parts of oxygen for five of nitrogen and in it he might have assumed two atoms of nitrogen and three of oxygen he preferred however to regard the substance as a compound of nitric acid and nitric oxide likewise he found in ethylene five point four parts of carbon for one of hydrogen and in marsh gas the same quantity of carbon for two of hydrogen on this account he regarded ethylene as consisting of atoms of the second order and assumed the atomic weights of carbon to be five point four 
carbonic oxide likewise consisted of atoms of the second order since he found in it seven parts of oxygen for 5.4 of carbon while carbonic anhydride and atoms of the third order because it contains 14 parts of oxygen for 5.4 of carbon as the analytical methods of dalton employed were liable to many sources of error it was out of the question that the results he obtained could be accurate however it was he who propounded the principle of the determination of the combining weights of the elements and this work brought him everlasting fame dalton's atomic theory generally speaking was favorably received by chemists thomas thompson seventeen seventy three eighteen fifty two who founded the first chemical laboratory for general instructions in great britain while professor in the university of glasgow became its devoted supporter and his system of chemistry eighteen o seven made it known to the general public in eighteen o eight thompson supplied an observation of his own in support of the law of multiple proportions dalton's attempts at a graphic presentation of the ultimate particles of various substances must not be forgotten the symbols he used to represent the atoms of the elements and to indicate the constitution of chemical compounds as well as his relative weight values are here given this system of notation never came into general use owing to the introduction of a simpler system by brazilius some time afterward to quote his own inference it appears that there are two oxalates of strontian the first obtained by saturating oxalic acid with strontian water the second by mixing together oxalate of ammonia and muriate chloride of strontian it is remarkable that the first contains just double the proportion of base contained in the second End quote. he also investigated the potash salts of oxalic acid Quote, oxalate of potash readily crystallizes in flat rhomboids commonly terminated by dihedral summits the lateral edges of the prism are usually beveled at the temperature of sixty degrees it dissolves in thrice its weight of water this salt combines with an excess of acid and forms a superoxalate long known by the name of salt of sorrel the acid contained in this salt is very nearly double of what it contained in oxalate of potash. Suppose 100 parts of potash, if the weight of the acid necessary to convert this quantity into oxalate be X, then 2X will convert it into superoxalate. End quote. Similar research was done by W. H. Wollaston, 1766-1828, who, by experiment, found that in the two compounds termed subcarbonate of potash and carbonate of potash the proportions of carbonic acid relative to the same amount of potash were one to two he also showed that supersulfate bisulfate of potash contains quote, exactly twice as much acid as is necessary for the mere saturation of the alkali present End quote. these contributions prove the applicability of the law for salts and the importance of the relation thus made evident was in general realized by the chemists of the day figure twenty dalton's graphic presentation of the elements simple figure one hydrogen relative weight one two azot relative weight five three carbon or charcoal relative weight five four oxygen relative weight seven five phosphorus relative weight nine six sulfur relative weight thirteen seven magnesia relative weight twenty eight lime relative weight twenty three nine soda relative weight twenty eight ten potash relative weight forty two eleven strontite relative weight 46 12 barity relative weight 68 13 iron relative weight 38 14 zinc relative weight 56 15 copper relative weight 56 16 lead relative weight 95 
17 silver, relative weight 100, 18 platina, relative weight 100, 19 gold, relative weight 140, 20 mercury, relative weight 167. Binary, number 21, an atom of water or steam composed of one of oxygen and one of hydrogen, retained in physical contact by a strong affinity and supposed to be surrounded by a common atmosphere of heat. Relative weight, 8. 22. An atom of ammonia composed of one of azote and one of hydrogen. Relative weight, 6. 23. An atom of nitrous gas, one azote plus one oxygen. Relative weight, 12. 24. An atom of olefiant gas, one carbon, plus one hydrogen, relative weight six. 25. An atom of carbonic oxide, one carbon plus one oxygen, relative weight 12. Ternary. 26. An atom of nitrous oxide, two azote plus one oxygen, relative weight 17. 27. An atom of nitric acid, one azote plus two oxygen, relative weight 19. 28. An atom of carbonic acid, one carbon plus two oxygen, relative weight 19. 29. An atom of carbureted hydrogen, one carbon plus two hydrogen, relative weight 16. Quaternary, number 30. An atom of oxynitric acid, one azote plus three oxygen, 26. 31. An atom of sulfuric acid, 1 sulfur plus 3 oxygen, relative weight 34. 32. An atom of sulfurated hydrogen, 1 sulfur plus 3 hydrogen, relative weight 16. 33. An atom of alcohol, 3 carbon plus 1 hydrogen, relative weight 16. Quinquinary and sextonary, number 34. An atom of nitrous acid, one nitric acid plus one nitrous gas, relative weight 31. 35. An atom of acetous acid, two carbon plus two water, relative weight 26. Septonary, number 36. An atom of nitrate of ammonia, one nitric acid plus one ammonia plus one water, relative weight 33. 37. An atom of sugar, one alcohol plus one carbonic acid, relative weight 35. It is now necessary to discuss the position which Davy and Gay-Lussac, among others, held respecting Dalton's atomic theory, as well as to narrate their services to chemistry in general. Humphrey Davy, the son of an engraver, was born at Penzance in 1778. The family circumstances were somewhat impecunious, and at the age of 17, he was apprenticed to a surgeon apothecary in his native town. Figure 21, preparation of nitrous oxide. At the age of 20, he was placed in charge of the laboratory of the Pneumatic Institute at Bristol, founded by Bedos for the application of gases to the treatment of diseases. Davy's environments here were most propitious for a successful career of scientific research. His laboratory was well furnished and was supported by the subscriptions of scientific men. He had plenty of time at his disposal and the age was one of discovery and rapid progress in science. His experiments related chiefly to nitrogen monoxide or nitrous oxide and in a short time he published his, quote, researches chemical and philosophical chiefly concerning nitrous oxide and its respiration, end quote. His courage and determination were well proved by these experiments. The effect of this gas, supposed to be poisonous, were tried upon himself. He discovered its anesthetic action. He then subjected himself similarly to the action of hydrogen, nitrogen, and carbonic acid. In 1801, Davy left Bristol to become a lecturer at the Royal Institution and two years later was elected Fellow of the Royal Society, 
he was soon a necessary figure in the fashionable life of the day his auditors of the royal institution were numbered by the thousand his name was on everybody's lips it was coolridge who said quote, i attended davy's lectures to increase my stock of metaphors End quote. he was knighted in eighteen eleven and created baronet in eighteen twelve a terrible mining disaster at felling brought him an invitation from the governors of the mine to investigate the conditions of such occurrences and after an extended investigation into the nature of marsh gas and its different admixtures with air he projected his well-known safety lamp this is but one instance out of many of his scientific insights being turned to material advantage davy was elected president of the royal society in eighteen twenty and died at geneva in eighteen twenty nine at the royal institution davy had at his command an excellent electric battery and as he had for some time considered that the most needed step in chemistry was the decomposition of some of the substances then regarded as elementary he thought that this was the most promising means for the solution of the question in seventeen ninety galvani made his well-known experiment and ten years later volta invented his electric cell these were important elements in the inquiry which went to correlate chemical and electrical phenomena and the perception that a close relation existed between electrical force and chemical reaction spread rapidly at the beginning of the nineteenth century after the decomposition of water into its constituents by the galvanic current had been proved by nicholson and carlyle in eighteen hundred and that of salts into their bases and acids by berzelius and hissinger in eighteen o three the most important of the many and varied observations on the deportment of chemical compounds when subject to the actions of the current however were made by davy and his discoveries entitled him to be regarded as the pioneer of electrochemistry as well as one of the most brilliant chemists the world has ever seen davy was among the first to investigate the question of the decomposition of water this work was begun in eighteen hundred in his Bakerian lecture delivered before the royal society in eighteen o six the subject of which was on some chemical agencies of electricity is found an investigation concerning the products of the electrolysis of water besides hydrogen and oxygen there was also formed acid and alkali davy states this as a fact quote, the appearance of acid and alkaline matter in water acted on by a current of electricity at the opposite electrified metallic surfaces was observed in the first chemical experiments made with a column of volta End quote. the problem requiring solution then was to ascertain whether the acid and alkali were derived from the water and if not whence they came davy therefore proceeded to carry out his electrolysis in vessels of various materials and to show that the products mentioned the acid and the alkali were due to the glass or to the matter dissolved in the water or to the air itself if the water distilled in silver was electrolyzed in gold vessels in an atmosphere of hydrogen the acid and alkali did not appear to give his own description quote, i repeated the experiment under more conclusive circumstances i arranged the apparatus as before gold cones and water distilled in silver vessels i exhausted the receiver and filled it with hydrogen gas from a convenient air holder i made a second exhaustion and again introduced hydrogen that had been carefully prepared the process was conducted for twenty-four hours and at the end of this time neither of the portions of the water altered in the slightest degree the tint of litmus it seemed evident then that water chemically pure is decomposed by electricity into gaseous matter alone into oxygen and hydrogen End quote he next investigated the decomposition of salt solutions and found confirmation of the statements of berzelius and hissinger but he proceeded with still greater circumspection and sought to follow up the phenomena more exactly all the means were at his command and he did not hesitate to avail himself of them figure twenty two davy's apparatus for electrolysis of water a and b electrodes c strands of asbestos direct observations proved to davy that hydrogen the alkali the metals etc 
are separated by means of the current at the negative pole and oxygen and the acids at the positive pole. From this he concluded that the former substances possess a positive while oxygen and the acids possess a negative electrical energy that in this case as usual the oppositely electrified bodies attract each other and that in consequence the positive substances separate at the negative pole and vice versa in this assumption davy had arrived at an explanation of the phenomena of decomposition observed in the galvanic circuit but he proceeded a step further and endeavored to refer all chemical combinations and decomposition to similar causes according to him the heat observed in certain cases of decomposition were manifestations of electricity on november nineteenth eighteen o seven davy delivered an account to the royal society of his most recent work on the nature of the alkalis he had made an attempt to decompose them by the electrolysis of their aqueous solutions but without success he had then passed a powerful current through solid potash fused over a flame and had observed a most intense light at the negative pole due probably to the combustion of the element he was seeking and his next experiment was decisive to give his own description quote, a small piece of pure potash which had been exposed for a few seconds to the atmosphere so as to give conducting power to the surface was placed upon an insulated dish of platina connected with the negative side of a powerful battery the positive pole was brought in contact with the upper surface of the alkali on passing the current the potash began to fuse at both its points of electrical action there was violent effervescence at the upper surface at the lower or negative surface there was no liberation of elastic fluid but small globules having a high metallic luster appeared End quote. and he had treated soda in the same manner with similar results quote, it appears he said that in these facts there is evidence for the decomposition of potash and soda into oxygen and two peculiar substances end quote. to these two peculiar substances he gave the names potassium and sodium in eighteen o eight davy had decomposed hydrochloric acid by means of potassium and in this way had obtained hydrogen and potassium chloride the latter of which he had also prepared by burning potassium and chlorine he proved in eighteen o nine that the chlorides muriates of the metals are not decomposed by heating them with calcium metaphosphate or with silicic anhydride but the decomposition at once begins when aqueous vapor is conducted over the mixture davy considered that henry's hypothesis furnished the explanation of these experiments and that hydrochloric acid could only be separated as soon as the quantity of water necessary for its existence was supplied about the same time gay lussac and thenard showed that water is produced as well as silver chloride by the action of this acid upon silver oxide and as formerly they assumed that this water was already present in the hydrochloric acid they then effected the synthesis of the acid by exposing a mixture of chlorine and hydrogen to sunlight on this occasion they advanced a complete theory regarding hydrochloric acid and chlorine by means of which they were able to explain all their experiments according to them hydrochloric acid was a compound of an unknown radical muraticum with oxygen and water chlorine on the other hand was anhydrous hydrochloric acid combined with more oxygen davy next sought to find the oxygen which was assumed to be present in oxymuriatic acid but by no means whatever could he abstract the oxygen from this compound a succession of electric sparks produced no effect neither did strongly ignited carbon if the gas were oxidized muriatic acid phosphorus and sulfur might be expected to combine with the oxygen and liberate the muriatic acid no such result had been obtained however and the oily liquids which were produced only yielded muriatic acid on the addition of water the oxymuriatic acid when passed over oxides of potassium barium and other metals produced muriates with evolution of precisely that amount of oxygen contained in the oxides referring to this experiment davy remarks quote, it is contrary to sound logic to say that the exact quantity of oxygen is given off from a body not known to be compound when we are certain of its existence in another End quote. 
he therefore explained these facts by regarding oxidized muriatic acid as an elementary substance and muriatic acid as its compound with hydrogen but chemists hesitated upon accepting his views davy maintained that this element to which he gave the name chlorine resembled oxygen in many respects and in a limited sense was also to be regarded as an acidifier and supporter of combustion the work of davy was clear and brought conviction and by eighteen twenty his theory of the nature of chlorine was generally accepted but oxygen could no longer be regarded as the sole acid-making principle and this necessitated a new theory of acids a french saltpetre manufacturer courtois in eighteen eleven discovered a particular substance in the soda obtained from sea plants he related his observation to clement who showed the body in question to davy davy soon demonstrated its elementary nature and gay-lussac after a complete investigation of iodine as he termed it and its compounds succeeded in showing its marked likeness to chlorine bromine was discovered by Rillard in eighteen twenty six in the mother liquid of sea-water hydrofluoric acid resisted all attempts to isolate its radical but ampere's suggestion that it was constituted similarly to muriatic acid found general acceptance from his observation that iodic anhydride was devoid of acid properties but acquired them after combination with water davy arrived at the conclusion that hydrogen and not oxygen was the acidifying principle in the latter compound hydrogen in his opinion was an essential constituent of all acids the assumption that hydrated acids and salts contained water or metallic oxides together with acid anhydrides he held to be unproven and unnecessary the french chemist Dulong expressed himself in a like manner after an investigation of oxalic acid and its salts and the former he looked upon as a compound of hydrogen with carbonic acid while in the latter he assumed an analogous combination of metals with the elements of carbonic acid the principles of a new theory of acids was therefore included in the discussion of davy and Dulong, but it is to be deplored that they did not follow them up sufficiently as otherwise they might have prevented the distinction which now began to be drawn between acids containing oxygen and those which did not with regard to davy's attitude to the atomic theory of, of dalton it should first be mentioned that he asserted in eighteen o nine that william higgins was the originator of this doctrine the latter's a comparative view of the phlogistic and antiphlogistic theories with inductions seventeen eighty nine davy maintained contained views similar to those of dalton but later he recognized dalton's service davy regarded dalton's atomic weights as simply the proportion numbers of the elements and maintained that there was no positive basis upon which to proceed for the determination of the atomic weights two other investigators of this time wollaston and gay lussac also refused to admit that dalton's atomic weights were really such previous to davy wollaston had asserted that there was the chemical equivalence of the elements while gay lussac could not concede that the ratio of one element to another was fixed by analytical and synthetical determinations his laws of combining volumes had a definite bearing on the atomic theory however and this generalization along with his work in analytical chemistry and numerous researches in inorganic chemistry rendered further notice of him necessary joseph louis gay lussac was a student of bertholet and in eighteen o nine became professor of chemistry at the ecole polytechnique at the same time holding the chair of physics at the sorbonne in eighteen thirty two he accepted the chair of chemistry at the jardin des plantes gay lussac was a masterly investigator capable of the most accurate analytical work and exact in observation and enriched chemistry with many valuable researches of special importance was his work on iodine and its compounds on cyanogen which he characterized as the first compound radical on sulphur and its compounds on the oxides of nitrogen on the isolation of boron and his conjoint investigation with l j thenard on the alkali metals and with liebig on the fulminates 
he also introduced improved methods of inorganic and organic analysis and is to be regarded as having laid the foundation of volumetric analysis his name is particularly associated however with his investigations on the combining volumes of gases in eighteen o five gay lussac and alexander von humboldt published a memoir entitled experiments on the ratio of the constituents of the atmosphere in which they announced that they had found the volume ratio hydrogen to oxygen two hundred to one hundred this led gay lussac to extend his investigations to the volume relationships of other gaseous substances which are compounds of gaseous constituents and by the close of the year eighteen o eight he was able to announce results which showed the existence of a simple and general law he summarizes his results as follows quote, i have shown in this memoir that the compounds of gaseous substances with which other are always formed in very simple ratios so that representing one of the terms by unity the other is one or two or at most three these ratios by volume are not observed with solid or liquid substances nor when we consider weights and they form a new proof that is only in the gaseous state that substances are in the same circumstances and obey regular laws the apparent contraction of volume suffered by gases on combination is also very simply related to the volume of one of them and this property likewise is peculiar to gaseous substances End quote. this law of combining volumes is stated by Oswald in his outlines of general chemistry as follows quote, if gaseous substances enter into chemical combinations their volumes are in simple rational proportions and if a gaseous substance is formed by their union its volume also is rationally related to the volumes of the original gases gay-lussac was himself inclined to conjoin his law of volumes with the atomic theory indeed he recognized in it a support for the latter a similar molecular condition was essential however in order that all gases should deport themselves alike toward pressure and changes of temperature and besides obey his law of volumes in other words equal volumes of gases must contain equal numbers of molecules gay-lussac drew no distinction between these molecules and atoms recognizing but one kind of final particle dalton opposed this reasoning and stated that he had held the same view as to combining volumes at one time but finally saw that it was untenable to quote from his a new system of chemical philosophy at the time i formed the theory of mixed gases i had a confused idea as many have i supposed at this time that the particles of elastic fluids were all of the same size that a given volume of oxygenous gas contains just as many particles as the same volume as hydrogenous but i became convinced that different gases have not their particles of the same size and that the following may be adopted as a maxim till some reason appears to the contrary namely that every species of pure elastic fluid has its particles globular and all of a size but no two species agree in the size of their particles the pressure and temperature being the same End quote. he also maintained that gases do not combine exactly by volumes but frequently by fractions of volumes he said quote, the truth is i believe that gases do not unite in equal or exact measures in any one instance when they appear to do so it is owning to the inaccuracy of our experiments in no case perhaps is there a nearer approach of mathematical exactness than in that of one measure of oxygen to two of hydrogen but here the most exact experiments i have ever made gave one point nine seven hydrogen to one oxygen End quote. his argument may be illustrated as follows taking hydrochloric acid as an example one atom of hydrogen chloride consists of one atom of hydrogen and one atom of chlorine then if equal volumes of gases contain equal numbers of molecules one volume of hydrogen and one volume of chlorine should produce one volume of hydrogen chloride but they really form two consequently each one of these can contain only half as many atoms as the original volumes of the constituents such ratiocination 
is manifestly conclusive as far as the theory of the volumes containing the same number of atoms is concerned unless some different definition of atoms is assumed the connection between gay lussac's law of volumes and dalton's atomic theory was shown by the italian physicist amadeo avogadro seventeen seventy six eighteen fifty six in eighteen eleven avogadro discarded dalton's artificial distinction between the ultimate particles of a compound and those of an element and made a distinction between what he termed molecules integrants and molecules elementaires or molecules and atoms the former being compound particles made up of the indivisible atoms the researches of gay lussac indicate then that a molecule of water consists of one molecule of hydrogen and one half molecule of oxygen a molecule of hydrogen chloride consists of one half molecule of hydrogen and one half molecule of chlorine and so the difficulty pointed out by dalton was effaced from chemical literature avogadro's assumption that equal volume of gases elementary or compound at the same temperature and pressure contain equal number of molecules although only a hypothesis is generally referred to as avogadro's law it is of fundamental importance to chemistry he also stated that the relative weights of gaseous molecules may be determined by the measurement of the relative weights of equal volumes of the gaseous substances that is by comparison of gaseous densities and that the number of gaseous volumes interacting indicates the relative number of molecules interacting and similarly the volume of the compound gas formed when compared with that of the constituents gives the number whole or fractional of elementary molecules entering into the composition of one compound molecule avogadro's conclusions produced practically no effect at the time they were promulgated and fifty years passed by before they were received with due recognition these conclusions of avogadro are sometimes credited to the french mathematician ampere seventeen seventy five eighteen thirty six but the memoir of the latter did not appear until eighteen fourteen and is much less important than that of avogadro while davy and gay lussac were conducting their valuable investigations an important literary chemical event most impressive and attractive in nature occurred when william prout seventeen eighty five eighteen fifty advanced his hypothesis of the genesis of the elements in eighteen fifteen in a paper upon the relations between specific gravities of bodies in the gaseous state and their atomic weights prout stated that he had often observed the close approximation to round numbers of many of the weights of the atoms from the table at his command he further deduced that all elementary numbers hydrogen being considered as one are divisible by four except carbon nitrogen and barium and these are divisible by two appearing therefore to indicate that they are modified by a higher number than unity of hydrogen he considered the other numbers might be sixteen or oxygen and that possibly all substances were composed of these two elements a short time after in eighteen sixteen he expressed the following views Quote, if the views we have ventured to advance be correct we may almost consider the protoeli of the ancients to be realized in hydrogen an opinion by the by not altogether new if we actually consider this to be the case and further consider the specific gravities of bodies in their gaseous states to represent the number of volumes condensed into one or in other words the number of the absolute weights of a single volume of the first matter proteally which they contain which is extremely probable multiples in weight must also indicate multiples in volume and vice versa and the specific gravities or absolute weights of all bodies in a gaseous state must be multiples of the specific gravity or absolute weight of the first matter because all bodies in a gaseous state which unite with one another unite with reference to this volume End quote. prout's conjecture was taken up by thomas thompson who being carried away by the attraction of simplicity became the advocate of a philosophical speculation contrary to experimental facts and even perceived in it a fundamental law of chemistry other chemists too showed a predilection for prout's hypothesis and notwithstanding the fact that berzelius 
and Turner demonstrated its untainability. Some exact investigators as late as 1840 betrayed an inclination to some of Prout's views. In fact, some writers of the present day consider that there may be a kernel of truth concealed in it, and although it has suffered numerous reversals, it is still revived at intervals. End of chapter 10